Please open the Word of God to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. And while you're turning, I'll send greetings to uh, Dr. Mike and Liam. I just got a text from Dr. Mike that they're watching in Montana right now. So, here's greetings. This is the last week for the Joneses to be with us, um, is my understanding. So, Pastor Mark will begin a sermon series going through Colossians today. We're going to start in chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Colossians 1, 1 through 8. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all of the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Well, before I get started, um, I do want to give a word of welcome to the Griever family. Thanks for being with us this morning. They're faithful to visit uh, when they are on their way to visit family. So thanks for stopping by. Uh, John is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Fenton, Missouri. He's been there 25, 23 years. And he's in, been in pastoral ministry over 40 years and teaches. And, um, and his wife, Irma, and son, Joel, are here with them as well. So give a, give a greeting to uh, the grievers when you see them. They're over here on the second row. Um, and we just, I want to I take a moment to pray for the work of First Baptist Fenton and the greater work and the cause of God in St. Louis, which is where Fenton is close to. So join me in prayer as we pray for our sister church. Father, we thank you for Pastor John and his family being with us. We thank you for the work that you have called them to and the saints that are there in Fenton, Missouri at First Baptist. And we thank you for your cause in the greater St. Louis area. And we pray for your blessing upon their church and upon all the churches that are seeking to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ to St. Louis, the St. Louis area. We pray for fruit for a visible, transformed lives, lives of the people there that would demonstrate the power of God, even as we see it displayed in these opening verses to the letter of Paul to the Colossians. We pray for your great life-transforming spirit and power to be at work in all of your churches such that people would be transformed within them and through them that the gospel would be preached and proclaimed and that sinners would be brought to King Jesus. And so we thank you for uh, this time together in your word. We pray that this time together would be fruitful, that your word, which is powerful and life-transforming, would bear fruit in us even as we sit uh, here this morning under it and that you would speak through me. Um, weak jar of clay, earthen vessel that I am, that you would make your power known. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we dive into Colossians 1... Um, quick, quick thing um, there. I'm going to try every week to make these little sermon application guides available. I'm not making any promise beyond Colossians, 
but I, but I will try it as a, as a, as a, a test run through Colossians. What I've done is I've printed the uh, text of the sermon, some application questions, and then some, uh, a place for sermon notes. You don't have to grab one right now, but if you'll grab one on the way out, it will help you process, I trust, God's Word a little further and di- dig it deeper into your soul as you get a chance to reflect on it and apply it to your life. So hope those are a blessing and a help to you. Also, uh, title of the series, I've entitled this Colossian series that we'll be going through as Christ in You. And I get that from Colossians 1, verse 27, where Paul writes, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I think that's a great theme verse for the book of Colossians. It's Colossians is a a unique book in some ways in that it really exposes to us the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Jesus Christ, but also how that work is supposed to affect our lives. So I felt like it was appropriate to call it that. And especially in these first eight verses, we see a great demonstration of the gospel's power. The gospel changes people. This is important for us to understand. I mean, we've seen it visibly demonstrated this morning in Emma's baptism, but we've seen it over and over and over and over again. The gospel contains within it the message about Jesus' death, his life, death, his resurrection, contains within it the power of God, which is able to change people's lives. We hear that in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But I want us to look this morning at just precisely how the gospel changes people. How is it that the gospel transforms a person's life? Notice verses 5 and 6. These are sort of the heart of the passage here. Paul writes, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. So the gospel has this ability to bear fruit, to increase, not just in certain areas and among certain cultures, among certain people who might like that sort of thing, among religious people or people who might be have a Jewish background or something like that. Nothing. It says it has the power to increase and bear fruit throughout the entire world. There is no people, there is no group that the gospel is not able to transform. No cultural background, no family history, no personal sin history or struggle that the gospel cannot enter in and begin bearing fruit and increasing and transforming people's lives. And we see it right here in this letter of to the Colossians. Now, this church was probably not planted by Paul. It was, in fact, planted by Epaphras, it seems, from verse 7. It indicates, Paul says, that they learned the gospel from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Epaphras is obviously reported back to Paul about the condition of the church in Colossae. And now Paul has taken an opportunity to write to them, to write them a letter that includes both encouragement, but also a word of correction at times about some things that they have been believing, which are contrary to the gospel. So that's the sort of origin of this letter. Chances are Paul has never met these people. He's never been there before, but through Epaphras, he's learned of them and he wants to write to them. And the first thing that he's immediately encouraged by is the way that the gospel is transforming that church and those people. So before we get to 
how the gospel comes to us and what the gospel does to us, I want to unpack one more time what the gospel is. We've said it repeatedly throughout this service, but I think we get a hint of it even in these opening words of Paul to the church. I've already read verse 4, but you've seen where he said, or verse 5. Verse 5 says, Because of this hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So Paul doesn't tell us what the gospel is per se, what the content of it is, but he does say that it is the word of the truth. So it's true. It's a message that's from God. And it's a message that concerns heaven and hope for heaven. That there's a life beyond this life that when we die... We will go of one to two places, heaven or hell. And this gospel concerns a hope by which we might make it to heaven. But he also says, lest we think that we have to work for that, or lest we think we have to achieve some sort of standard of obedience by which God will accept us, he underscores the the, the content of this is grace and peace. Notice verse 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you, And peace from God our Father. Now the word grace is very, very important. It's critical to our understanding of what the gospel is. Because the gospel is first and foremost a message of grace. It is a message of undeserved, unmerited, contra-conditional love from God. It has nothing to do with our obedience, our merit, our deservedness. It's a free gift. The gospel is good news, not good advice. It's an announcement of what God has already done to secure our forgiveness and hope for heaven, not a obligation of what we must do in order to receive it. So it's grace. It's also peace. It has contained within it the means by which God can make peace with us. See, we're all born in relationship with God. Do you know that? We talk about people not having a relationship with God and having a relationship with God. Baloney. Everybody has a relationship with God. It's just whether or not it's on good terms or not. And when we're born into the world, we're born on bad terms with God. You say, I didn't do anything to deserve that. That's right. In one sense, you didn't. But Adam did. We are all born in union with Adam. And as a result of Adam's sin and his trespass, we inherit his sinful nature and we inherit his condemned condition. And therefore, a second Adam has to come along, or what the Bible calls the last Adam, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives in our place and dies for our place and undoes, undoes all that Adam did and did all that Adam didn't do in order to secure our right standing with God. You say, well, that's not fair. I don't like representation. And I like to stand on my own. Well, if we don't like the representation we have in Adam, we're certainly not going to like the representation we could have in Christ. And the representation that we have in Christ is a much better record than we ever could achieve, that we could ever desire. So the bad news is that, yes, in Adam, we are born sinful and under condemnation. But in Christ, we are offered freedom and life and peace with God. Romans 5.1 reminds us that in Christ, we have peace with God. That is, all the wrath that we deserve, the, the condemnation that is owing to us for our sin, has been met through the cross work and resurrection of Jesus Christ, such that now God can offer this free gift to any who will call upon the name of the Lord. And so that's the gospel. That's what the content is. It concerns a hope of heaven. It's through grace. It has peace at its core. And it's the word of the truth. 
It is a word from God. And that's why it has power to change people's lives. That's why we see it in these first opening verses. If the gospel wasn't God's message, it certainly wouldn't be transforming people's lives here in Colossae nearly 2,000 years ago. And it certainly wouldn't be transforming people's lives today and down through history. And it certainly wouldn't be able to do it in the whole world across all times and all cultures. But that's exactly what the gospel does. The gospel can't be stamped out because it is the word of the truth. So let's look briefly then two points this morning to our sermon. First, how the gospel comes to us. And second, what the gospel does in us. How the gospel comes to us and what the gospel does in us. Here's the first one. Let's talk about how the gospel comes to us. Before we look and see it here in Colossians chapter 1, if you've got a Bible, I want you to go back to Romans chapter 10, a few books back, Paul's letter to the Romans. And he writes here a very succinct summary of the way that the gospel comes to a group of people or to a person. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So here's how the gospel comes to a group of people. Just Read that, those three verses backwards. Start at verse 15 and work to verse 13, and you get a summary of how the gospel comes to a person. Notice first, there's got to be a preacher that is sent, verse 15. So someone is sent by the Spirit to preach. This can happen in a church service. It can happen on a mission field and crap across a table. It can happen in a book about the gospel that someone happens to be reading. It can happen in any number of ways. But the point is, is that someone is speaking the gospel or is sent to preach it. Then verse 14, near the end, someone preaches. And then they hear what's being preached. And then they believe what's being preached. And then they call on the name of the Lord and are saved. That's how it works. It's not Rocket surgery. I intended that to be not rocket science, but melding brain surgery and rocket science together. It's a new phrase. Take it, kids. Use it on the street. See if we can get it trending. So you've got this sent preacher. You've got the preacher preaching. You've got the people hearing, believing, and calling on the name of the Lord. So now let's see it in Colossians. Let's see it played out. And illustrated in the way the gospel came to the Colossian. First of all, we have Epaphras. Verse 7. This beloved, faithful servant. This faithful minister of Christ. Don't you love the way Paul describes his fellow co-worker? He's loved. I love this guy. He's a fellow servant. He's doing what I'm doing. He's a faithful minister of Christ. He's not an apostle. He doesn't have any special gifts or calling. He's just a faithful minister of Christ. And it's on the behalf of the Colossians that he goes. And what does he do? He preaches the gospel to them. And they believe it. They hear it. They believe it. And they call 
on the name of the Lord. We'll get to that in just a second. Is there a person, think about this, people who have been changed by the gospel, like Epaphras, share it with people who haven't yet been changed by the gospel. That's what we're called to be and do as the church. We're called to take the relationships that God has placed in our lives and leverage them for the sake of loving people and sharing the gospel with them. So is there someone with whom you could currently share the gospel? Passing on the message of reconciliation by which you have been saved. Could you open your mouth? Could you write a letter? Could you share something with someone? It's a great opportunity to see God at work. You say, I want to see God at work in my life. Share the gospel. Share the gospel. Think about it. When you put the gospel in your mouth and you start sharing it, the power of God is activated. That's a that's tremendous. And sometimes we're scared to share the gospel because that's power. And we can't control that. What's going to happen? But we should lean into that opportunity and rejoice in the opportunity to share the gospel and to communicate that to others. But notice the Colossians respond in faith. They hear it, understand it and respond. Look at verse five and six of this. Talk about the hope of heaven, the gospel you have heard, heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So there's their hearing of the gospel from Epaphras. Verse six, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world's bearing fruit. Look at the end of verse six. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So there it is. They've got to hear it. But it's not just hearing the gospel. They have to understand it. What is it? And it's, as I said earlier, it has to do with the grace of God, a free offer of salvation through Jesus for all those who will call upon his name. Now, notice how they respond. Verse four, since we heard now, this is getting back to Paul about what's happening to them. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. See, when people hear the gospel and they understand it truly, that it's the grace of God, it's a free gift, it's offered to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord, then they respond with faith. And it's not just faith in the abstract. It's not like, well, I just believe in God. That's not good enough. This is believing and having faith in Christ Jesus. See, faith and not... It's more than just believing in some God. It's a specific response of a belief in a message of grace from God to a person or a group of people. And so faith involves understanding. You have to have the content. You got to understand what the gospel is. And then you have to agree with it or assent to it. And then all importantly, and this is what sets a Christian apart from every other form of false belief is that you actually place your trust in that message. In other words, you transfer your trust and your confidence from yourself to Jesus, that he becomes the one that you look to for salvation and the hope of heaven, not yourself, him. If he doesn't get me in, if he doesn't punch my ticket, it's not going to happen. So I have to have him as my savior. He, he's the one who's lived the perfect life. 
God is holy. If you're go- we're going to be accepted in the presence of a holy God, we have to have a perfect record. How can light dwell with darkness? So by virtue of Christ's life, his death for our sin, he provides us with everything we need to enter into heaven. So have you responded to that message? Surely in a crowd this big, there are some of you who haven't yet. Have you heard, understood, but all importantly, have you actually embraced Jesus? Have you transferred your trust to him? Have, are you right now banking on him as the sole provider of your hope for heaven? You say, yes. My next question to you is, have you gone public with that? Have you gotten in the water and gone public with that? Because that's the means by which people declare their discipleship to Jesus. It's the way he said. He didn't say, you know, when, he was, when Jesus was given the Great Commission and he told his disciples, go out, make disciples. He didn't say, by the way, get them to come to the front, bow down and, and get on the steps and pray a prayer. And that's how they'll know. That's how they make their public profession of faith. That's not what Jesus said to do. That's not that that's wrong to do. That's fine to do. It's great to do. Invite people to pray. Invite people to come forward. Talk to people. That's fine. Not beating up on it. But the point is, is that that's not the way people declare their faith in Jesus. It's the baptismal waters that they do it. That's where they declare that they are one with Jesus and identified with Jesus. Because Jesus said, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So that's how the gospel came to the Colossians. They had a preacher named Epaphras. He preached the gospel of free grace and peace and hope for heaven in Jesus Christ. They heard it. They responded to it in faith and they were reconciled to God. And Paul writes them and gives great thanks to God for this because it's the work of God when people do that. That's all important. We see it in verse one. Notice how Paul became an apostle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It wasn't like Paul woke up one morning and just said, you know what? I'd like to apply for a job and I'd like to apply for a job as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had no interest in that. We'll talk about that in a second. But what what happened to him is that he was called by the will of God to be an apostle. And that's no different than the way Sinners are brought into the kingdom of heaven. That's why he doesn't write to the Colossians and say, I would thank God for this, but it's mainly your doing because you were wise enough and smart enough to hear the gospel and believe it. So thank you. Thank you for receiving Epaphras and thank you for being kind to him. And thank you for giving an audience for him to preach the gospel. And thank you for listening. And thank you for believing you're such good people. He didn't say that he thanked God. Why does he thank God? Because God's the one who's moving through the power of the gospel to transform people. God is the one who has owned the gospel and blessed the gospel and made it beneficial and enabled the people to hear it, enabled the people to understand it, enabled the people to embrace it. And therefore, God gets the thanks. God gets the glory and God gets the prayer for their continuance in what they have heard and believed. So there's the first point, how the gospel comes to us people who have been changed by the gospel share it with people who haven't people hear and respond in faith second point what the gospel does to us how does it bear fruit how does it in the language of verse six increase what does it look like i've got three things number one it changes people it changes people and i just want to pick on two people it has radically changed and give you a little bit of their autobiographies and they're the author and the scribe of this letter Paul and Timothy. 
Okay, we see that in verse 1. Paul, he's the apostle of Christ Jesus. He's the one who has been called into the special office as a sent one of Jesus who is called to take the gospel to people. And Timothy, who is his apostolic assistant, his brother, his friend, his son in the faith. These two are the ones who are writing, and these two are A1 examples of how the gospel changes someone. First of all, let's think about Paul. Who was Paul? When we first meet him in the Bible, it's in Acts 7, verse 58, and he's a young man from Tarsus by the name of Saul. And he's, he's complicit in the execution of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. He was a Pharisee, which means he was a religious zealot, and he was full of blasphemy against Jesus. He hated Jesus. He hated the followers of Jesus. And therefore, he was okay with Stephen getting stoned as a disciple and follower of Jesus. He ravaged the church. He threatened and imprisoned men and women who followed Jesus. And then something happens in Acts chapter 8 and 9 where he encounters a resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he is transformed immediately. Now, I want you to read with me his testimony some years later in his life, as he's getting near to death, as he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, and he writes the following about his own life-transforming encounter with Jesus. Beginning at verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's testimony is, I was wretched. I was a blasphemer. I was an opponent of Jesus and his people. And then his mercy and grace overflowed for me. If I had to earn it, there was no hope. But the fact that he encountered me on the road and said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I was humbled and broken. And I got a vision of who Jesus really was. And as a result, my life was transformed such that now I can preach the gospel and say, I'm the chief of sinners, which means if Jesus can save me, save anybody. And I invite you to believe in him. Well, the same is a story of Timothy. That Now, Paul's is a story of radical conversion. I mean, it's, it's radical. It's, he is diametrically opposed. He's like, it, it, would like, it would be like if uh, several members of ISIS just got converted like that. Because that's what he's doing. He's persecuting the church, seeking to kill Christians, all that stuff. And as a result, he meets the resurrected Jesus, gets a vision, boom, turned around. Timothy is a little bit different. It's not this radical conversion. It's more of an, if I could say this, ordinary. Paul's is more extraordinary, and God saves people extraordinarily. If you don't believe that, there's several testimonies in here which could give evidence of that fact, that God saved. They know the minute, the hour, the moment. When God says, talk to Dave Owens, you can talk to Pastor Keith. There are just clear, extraordinary, dramatic conversions where they know they met Jesus right there. 
And there are others, probably the majority, in which God just ordinarily brings someone slowly over time to himself. We see this in Timothy. Let's look at his testimony in 2 Timothy when Paul is writing to him. 2 Timothy verse 1 or chapter 1 verse 5. This is Paul writing, giving us a little autobiographical information about Timothy, which we wouldn't know otherwise. 2 Timothy 1.5, I'm reminded, Paul says, of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. Then chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy grows up with the scriptures. He grows up understanding the scriptures. He doesn't from Acts. We understand that his father is not a Christian, but his mother is. And his grandmother is. We see Lois and Eunice right here. And through them, Timothy learns about the gospel. And he comes, we don't know exactly when, but he comes to embrace it. And this is, this is an example of maybe a more ordinary conversion. God blessing the faithful instruction of a mom and grandmother to the child and grandchild. And God using that to bring about at least early faith and then ultimately a decided a decided declaration that he belongs to jesus when he meets paul later in the book of acts but this is very important for us to understand is that god the the way the gospel changes people is different it doesn't always come like a lightning bolt but sometimes it does and other times even though it doesn't come like a lightning bolt it is no less the power of god So kids, listen to me. Those of you who've had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, you don't have to wait for God to strike you down in a motorcycle accident when you're 25 to know that Jesus spared your life and has called you to believe. You can know that right now. You are are experiencing an, an upbringing similar to Timothy in that he had spiritual influence in his life. He had the gospel. He had people sharing the gospel with him. So don't despise that. And don't think that your coming to Christ is any less special because it doesn't make the headlines. It's not the radical conversions that we're going to hear about. You know, well, my life, I was, I just, I just grew up in a Christian family. And from the time I was born, I never knew. I I think I believed in Jesus, but I knew that I was not going to be right with God if I didn't believe in him. And so I need to believe in him. That's a great testimony. That's a glorious testimony of how God has spared you. He loved you so much that he placed you in a family that loves Christ, a church that loves Christ. What an amazing gift. What an amazing gift. And he gets the glory for that testimony. You didn't cause yourself to be born in that family. You didn't cause yourself to be in that church. God put you there. And so he gets the glory as much for that testimony as the one he knocked off a motorcycle at 25 and saved. And I don't know anybody who got knocked off a motorcycle at 20. I'm just, I don't know why that's coming to my mind. Maybe it's going to happen. I don't know. So the gospel changes people, sometimes in radical, extraordinary ways, sometimes in very ordinary ways. But nonetheless, it's still the power of God. 
And just think about this. It takes those, and just in Paul's case, it, it, the gospel has the power to take those who put Christians in prison and makes them people who are willing to go to prison on behalf of Christians. That's what Paul did. I mean, he's writing this letter from prison. Notice the end, the very end of the letter. Verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. That was his way of signing off on the letter that Timothy likely transcribed. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. In other words, remember that I'm sitting in jail right now because I'm preaching the gospel. This is what the gospel does. It takes Christians who will put or people who will put Christians in prison and makes them into those who are willing to go to prison because they're trying to make more Christians. It gives people a new identity. Notice the identity that Paul pronounces over this church as he writes to them in verse two to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. There's a world of theology in just that that verse alone. First of all, he says to the saints, these are set apart ones for God. These are not a special class of Christians. Contrary to our friends in the Roman Catholic Church, many good friends and, and many in our own community, saints are not a special class of Christian. They're an ordinary Christian. Paul is writing this to Christians, ordinary Christians. And he says, they're all saints. That is, they're all set apart. They're all belong to God. They all have the same status. And notice, they are faithful brothers in Christ. That's the way God sees us in Christ, is that we are faithful. We are the brothers of Jesus Christ. We are saints that belong to him. And we're in Christ at Colossae. That's an interesting phrase. We have a new spiritual location, but the same physical location. All right? So we're not, you know, we're not like Amish or Mennonite, where we seek to separate completely from culture. We stay in culture. We stay in Owensboro, if God keeps us here, or wherever he takes us. We're, we're present. We're, we're part of the city of man. But nevertheless... We are in Christ. So we're the same. We're in the same place spatially while in a different place spiritually. And that's all important for faithfulness to live as Jesus called us to live. Because Jesus was the same way. He came from heaven. He dwelled among men on earth. But anybody walking across Jesus wouldn't have said, that guy didn't look Jewish. No, he was a Jewish man. And so, but he was also the son of God. So we are in Christ at Owensboro. So this is our identity. So the gospel changes people. That's my point. Second, what else does the gospel do besides changing people? Well, it takes those changed people and it creates a church. It creates a church. Notice verse 2. Again, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, the Colossian church. So this is what the gospel does. The gospel doesn't just come and change people and then, you know, individual here, individual there, this woman, this man, this boy, this girl. You know, it does do that as it starts to spread. But then the gospel draws those people together into a little family, sometimes a big family, 
but a little, at least a little family called a church, the body of Christ. So we see that Paul is just not writing to individual Christians in the city of Colossae. He's writing to a church that's in Colossae and all of his letters in the New Testament, except for his, you know, his letters to Timothy and Titus and others like that are, are written to churches. They're written to people. They're written to groups, gatherings of Jesus disciples in local churches. So we, we learn a little bit about what the nature of the church is here from the, these few verses too. And I want to talk about those things as well. So first of all, think about this, the church not only that is the gospel create a church, but it creates a people who love one another. It creates a group of people who sacrificially care and love for one another. We see that in verse four and verse eight. Notice, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, he's giving thanks for this, but he's also giving thanks not just for their faith, but notice how their faith is working its way out. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love of the love that you have for all the saints. And then verse 8, Epaphras, reporting back to Paul, says, He has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has produced a community of love among these Christians. That's what church is, fundamentally. It's a community of people that love one another for Jesus' sake, that love one another precisely because, not because they're like me, not because they're in my, they share my same interests, not because they're my same age, not because of any of that, because they belong to Jesus. I once heard a story of a, uh, of a man or a couple who went to visit another church couple's wedding. And it was a fairly, fairly good-sized wedding. And they walked into the wedding, and no one really knew them, but they sat down. And then before the wedding started, a member of the family walked up to this couple and said, you know, what are you doing here? I have never, never met you guys before. What's your name? And they, they shared their name and they introduced themselves. And then the, the man asked him, well, why are you here? And he says, well, so-and-so are members of our church. And he says, well, do you know them personally? He said, no, I don't know them personally. He's like, well, then why are you here? Because they're members of our church. Well, then if you don't know them personally, but you've come to celebrate at their wedding, then why, why would you do something like that? Open door for the gospel. Because we love people because they're part of Christ, not because we necessarily have an extensive knowledge of them. That's why we showed up. Because they're in our family, in Christ. And that's a, that's a great example of love. It's one example. It's not the only example of love, of course, but it's one example of how love for a brother or sister in Christ with whom you might have no relationship doesn't make sense to the world. Why would you take time to do that? You're not obligated to do it. They're not going to shame you if you don't come or expect you to be there. So why would you show up? Well, because they're members of our church. See, love for others in the church, especially those you don't know very well, Maybe those who have sinned against you or offended you is one of the greatest evidences that we've been saved. It's one of the greatest evidences that we've been transformed. We start loving people just because they're in Christ. It makes no sense. Don't have any earthly relationship with them. This is how Jesus said, All, people will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And 
First John chapter 3, verse 14, John writing again, stresses that this is the way we know that we have brought out of from, been brought from death to life because we love the brothers. Because the church is the body of Christ, Christ loves the church. And if our Lord loves the church, so too must we, for we're called to imitate Christ. And if we do not love the church, we don't love Christ. That's the logic of the New Testament. Let me read it again. The church is the body of Christ, therefore Christ loves the church. If our Lord loves the church, we have to love the church because we're called to imitate Christ. And one of the things that Christ does is love the church. If we don't love the church, we don't love Christ. That's the way the New Testament argues. You ever think about the worst consequence of skipping church? I know none of you are skipping church. You're all here, you know. So this is, in a sense, a needless application. But for those of us who are from time to time, even your own pastor, tempted to sometimes skip church, even though I'm preaching, that may be a little bit awkward. Well, he skipped today. But here's, here, you know, that we throw this verse out a lot. You know, um, we, we know it. Uh, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together or come together, gather with the church, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You ever think about what's the motivation for not skipping church, not missing out on uh, the church? Notice the passage does indeed warn of the serious consequences of skipping church for us individually later on in the chapter, but its focus is not what we might expect. This passage does not warn us that when we skip church, we put ourselves at risk. Rather, it warns us that when we skip church, we put other people at risk. The first sin of skipping church is the sin of failing to love other people who need your encouragement by being here. Do you re- Let me read the verse again. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. That sounds like an other orientation. And good, not neglecting to meet together, understand, because you wouldn't get to do that if you didn't meet together. You wouldn't get a chance to encourage somebody. You wouldn't get a chance to pray with somebody, greet somebody, love somebody, care for somebody. That's the motivation. That's why we need you here. We need you to love each other, care for each other. Here's what one writer says about this. He says, when we approach Sunday deliberately, eager to do good to others, to be a blessing to them, we will find ourselves most blessed. So this isn't about guilt and about shame. It's about an opportunity to be blessed. In those times we feel our zeal waning, when we feel the temptation to skip out on a Sunday or withdraw altogether, we should consider our God-given responsibility to encourage one another. This text is not about us. It's primarily, it is about our individual commitments to our Christian communities. Every Christian has a place within a local church. Every Christian is needed within a local church. Every Christian has responsibilities within a local church. Every Christian is to commit themselves to the membership of a local church, to love them, encourage them, stir them up in zeal until the day of Christ's return. And it's as we do so that we will be blessed because he who waters will himself be watered. And it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we will know that blessing. So this is why we desire you as God's people to love one another, to care for one another, even if you don't know each other. Sign up for hospitality meals with people you don't even know. You get their address, just go see them at their house. It's fine. 
We, we love it when we send out hospitality requests or whatever, when a, when a brother or sister's in the hospital and they're, they're struggling or they're, we're, we're going to prepare meals for them. It is so encouraging to see, boom, those things fill up quick. I mean, they fill up fast. And that's a great expression of love. But here's the thing. It's filled up by the same people. The same people fill it up, not different people. And that's fine. There's, there, in some cases, that's absolutely fine. Those, those brothers and sisters have a heart of mercy, compassion, and gifts for cooking. And we're thankful they sign up. It's great. So no, no shame there. But it would be a great opportunity also for new families to chip in, to get after it, and to serve in that way. That's not the only way, obviously. What about life events like funerals or baby showers or weddings or things like that? where there are big events going on in the life of someone in our church, whether positive or, or not, and, and you just make it a point to go there as an expression of your love for Jesus and as an expression of your love for his people, whether or not you have a great relationship with them or not. So that, that, those are just some examples. There are a hundred other ways that could be applied and worked out in our own lives. And so I'll leave it to your own reflection on that to think about how, how is it that I'm currently sacrificially loving and blessing, seeking to be a blessing to other people in this community because that's what Paul commends this church for, the love that they have for all the saints, not just the saints that they're, they're, they're immediate friends, not just the saints in their small group, the saints that are in the church and seeking to be a blessing to them. All right, two more very quickly. It, not, it creates a church, which is a group of people that love one another. It also creates people who think for the spiritual growth of others. Is not this letter an example of someone thinking for the spiritual growth of somebody else? It's Paul thinking for the growth of the Colossians, right? You say, well, he's an apostle. He's called to that. That's what he's supposed to do. But notice here, it also manifests itself in the life of other of, of the church as they love one another, as they extend care for each other. Certainly that wasn't limited to just things they did for each other, but it was also words they spoke, ways they invested, ways they cared. And so we see this also in the way Paul and Timothy first got together. Notice with me for Acts chapter 16. This takes us back to when Paul and Timothy had their first meeting. And here's what we see in the way that Paul expressed care, spiritual uh, growth for or concern for Timothy's well-being and growth. Acts 16, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. What did Paul do? He just met a brother and said, hey, come with me. Let's spend some time together. Let's hang out. Come with me on this trip. And it was through that that, a, that Timothy was discipled and grown up in the faith and encouraged. See, if we see our churches as nothing more than interest groups or community organizations, we must be reminded that we belong to a family that seeks to care and grow one another up. This letter will challenge us as we go through it to be thinking for the growth of the church and our fellow brothers and sisters. 
They're not just other people out there whom ha, who, who have a share, who, with whom we share an interest. They're brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we have obligations to love, support, rebuke, and encourage. So the question is, are you seeking to develop intentional relationships with others in the congregation for the purpose of doing them spiritual good? Thirdly, it creates a people who pray for others. Creates a people who pray for others. Notice what he says. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Verse 7, just as you learned it from Epaphras, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Notice the way this is expresses itself in Colossians 4, verse 12. This is the second time we hear about Epaphras in the letter. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So it creates a group of people who pray for each other. And we're going to talk more about prayer next week, so I'm, I'm not going to make a whole lot of applications to prayer. But I just want to see two things that are, that are aspects of prayer here. First, there's thanksgiving, and then there's intercession, right? We see it in verse 3. Paul thanks God for this church, and then he begins to recount all the ways he's thankful. And then Epaphras is held up as an example in verse 7 and chapter 4, verse 12, as someone who's interceding for them, asking God to mature them and bless them and help them as a church. You can imagine why his heart was so tied to this church, because he, he saw God work through him to bring about the gospel coming to this place. But it creates a community of people who are thankful for others. Do you pray with thanksgiving for what's going on in the life of the church? I was rebuked by that this week. I was reading this and I'm like, daggone, Paul, always so thankful. Just finding reasons to be thankful for anybody. And then I thought, yeah, and he was thankful for the Corinthians. When he wrote to the Corinthians, I mean, think about this. Here's a church with division and incest and suing each other and abuse of spiritual gift, and getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. God's having to kill some people. This is, a, this, is, this is messed up, church. It's messed up. And then in 1 Corinthians 1, he begins by thanking God for them. And he finds reasons to be thankful and evidences of grace that are at work. And so I challenged myself this week, and I didn't even get a big list. But I just thought, in what ways should we be thankful as a people for what the things that God is doing even in our own church? And I thought about this. Faithful, long-tenured, experienced elders with prospects for more. Exceptional, sacrificial, wise deacons. A loving membership that cares for each other. Specific answers to prayer. Maybe even with Mike Jones or Pastor Ted's cancer and lots of other examples in our church. An upcoming school year for Heritage Christian School that God has faithfully sustained that ministry for decades, or at least, yeah, decades at this point. Partnership with local ministries and other gospel works that are going on in our community. CareNet, Mentor Kids, Friends of Sinners, Daniel Patino Shelter, St. Benedict's, Nursing Homes, sending missionaries, supporting them, caring for them, couples fostering and adopting, ministries to men and women, kids and youth where discipleship is taking place, baptisms, conversions, the the, the opportunity to help churches get planted, like Pleasant Valley and, and, and us are partnering with, with GCC to help get them off the ground. And a debt-free facility. That, I mean, there are, there are hundreds of examples of reasons to be thankful to God for what he has done in the life of our church. And so I'm rebuked as the, this example is held up by the Apostle Paul of reasons to be thankful for the church. Let me close with this. 
the basis of all of this, the basis of the, the change that has occurred, the reason that these people love one another, the reason that people pray for each other, the reason they care about the spiritual growth of each other, the reason they're desiring to share the gospel with others is flowing out of their faith in Christ Jesus, which is issued in love. And the basis of all that is in verse 5, the hope laid up for us in heaven. Heaven and the hope of heaven as the object of our hope is what shapes the course of our lives. And so what was specifically helpful in thinking through this text is the more we fixate on heaven, the more we think about heaven, the more we set our hopes there, the more that we desire to be there, the more these realities will bubble up in our church. That it's a heavenly occupation and a heavenly disposition and a heavenly love that issues in all of these changes and brings about all this growth. So, brothers and sisters, let us set our minds on things above Colossians 3 1. Let's fix our mind and our attention there. The more we focus horizontally and just think about this life, the more our faith, love, and hope will be stunted. We're made to be people who are preoccupied, not with this age, but with the age to come and the hope of heaven. And as that is before us, it will help us reorient our priorities to what's really important. So the greatest and deepest need of our lives is to fix our hope and eyes and hearts on heaven. And let's pray and help ask the Lord to help us do that as the worship team comes. Father, thank you for giving us a hope of heaven at all. Thank you for extending to us a savior who is your son, who has lived and died for us such that we could be reconciled to you and have a hope of being with you forever and ever. May you use these words this morning, this time in your word this morning, to stir us up to love and good deeds as we seek the things that are above where Christ is and where our hope of heaven is truly anchored May you help us, God. We, 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 we walk in Sunday after Sunday with just the mud of this world just all over us. And the, we feel so sometimes depleted and discouraged and weighed down. But may you dust us off, clean us up and raise us up and lift us up and send us out of here with fresh encouragement, fresh vision, fresh hope and fresh love for you and your people. We ask all of this in Jesus name. Amen. As we stand to sing, I want to remind us why we come to sing at the end of the service. It's not just because it's a habit. It's not just because of um, it's just a ritual. It's just what we do. The power of the gospel should create in us a desire to praise God and to give him glory. So let's do that.